You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Back to school. Backpacks. Lockers. Lockers to hide in. Get out of that locker, Eugene. <laughs> Speaking of school, what's the biggest lesson you ever learned? To subscribe to Patreon to help keep this show on the air. Ooh, I was out sick that day. How do I subscribe? Well, to be one of the cool kids. Okay, sorry. Uh, become one of our Patreon supporters and help keep us on the air. Head on over to Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com or P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Set up a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. You know the routine, guys. Your contribution helps us continue doing what you're doing and bringing all these amazing stories to your ears. Good to know. Well, I'm going to subscribe and get a note to get out of PE. Rob. I have bone spurs. Oh. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest wears many hats. As one of the most respected lecturers in the topic of music and musical theater, he holds a PhD from Yale University and holds the title of Director of the BMI Music Theater Advanced Workshop. Not to mention his work with the Dramatist Guild, the Kleban Foundation, and the Kurt Weill Foundation. When he is not educating the artists of tomorrow, he is composing some of the most soaring scores for the American musical theater, including Nine, Grand Hotel, Phantom, Titanic, Death Takes a Holiday, and many, many more. He has been rewarded with two Tony Awards, plus nominations for the Golden Globe and the Academy Award. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Raul Julia, Tommy Toon, Thomas Meehan, Yo-Yo Ma, Anita Moore, Morris, David James Carroll, and so many more. Here's one of the industry's most productive and beloved writers, Maury Eston. Oh, thanks very much Welcome. for that introduction. And now one thing we did not mention in the introduction, which I, I'm going to get it out of the way now. Christmas in the Stars. Christmas in the Stars. The Star Wars Christmas album. Well, you know, the story of my life is, is helping people in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, you... you uh, you always have to understand the times and the context in which things happen, right? So we are talking about, uh, let's see, that would have been, uh, that would have been uh, probably in the 1970s. Because yep, I remember that, I remember that my son was seven years old and he was a Star Wars fanatic. Yeah. I remember being with him at the, at the front of the line for the Empire Strikes Back. Huh. That's how crazy he was. And yeah. so I liked Star Wars, 
and I was attracted to Star Wars, and I had a kid who was living Star Wars, right. and so, and so, and I had a friend uh, who had been a, a pop songwriter who had written some really great hits like "Working My Way Back to You, Girl," oh, yeah. Yeah. "Native New Yorker," and he had a really good friend named Miko Minardo who was a trombone player, and who had gotten together with uh, with uh, Tony Bon Jovi. Uh, who, by the way, is the older cousin of somebody named John Bunch. Right. <laughs> and and Tony, uh, Tony is a brilliant uh, uh, studio designer, uh, and he actually designed the power station, which became Avatar, yeah. and which is now going to go back to the power station. Is it? Now that it's been, it's been sold. A and, um, and they had gotten together, uh, along with this uh, pal of mine, because uh, they were at the height of the disco era. Yeah. And anything that you could find, baby face, baby face, doom. <laughs> you Ethel Merman even had a disco what, album. What, yeah. F, right. And they, they went, there's got to be a Star Wars disco album. So they got in touch with Lucas, and sure enough, they produced the Star Wars disco album. And it went like this. Forever. I think it sold three to four million albums. Oh they made an unbelievable fortune, and with that money, they, they, they built the power stage. They built that studio. Oh my. And, and then they got this crazy idea in the late 70s that, uh, it, you know what? Why do we do a Christmas album? We'll do it, we'll do it. And so they got together and they, they solicited contributions from name writers in mm. Hollywood and in the music business. We're doing a Christmas album. We got, they got the permission from Lucas, because after all, Lucas Films had made a lot of money on the Star Wars, yeah. uh, on the Star Wars disco album. Of course, wow. And so, um, and so they... Um, and you wrote some songs Well, no, 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 no. They, they, none of the songs that they were sent were working at all. I didn't know anything about it. I, I was still, uh, I, was, I was at the time the director of undergraduate studies in music at Yale. Mm -hmm. I was the head of the undergraduate music Department. And by the way, some of my star students at the time had names like Ted Sperling, oh. David Loud, yeah. Vicki Clark, Tommy Krasker. I mean, yeah. uh, they were. All people we've interviewed yeah, for this yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and this friend of mine said, I'm pulling my hair out. Maybe you can help us. And I said, Well, what's going on? And he said, Well, we're doing this, this, this Christmas album, you know, with the Star Wars theme. And, and none of, it's not working. We don't, we're getting material, but it's all unrelated, and some of it is good, and some of it is not good. And, uh, and I said, well, I love Star Wars, and, you know, and my kid, would, you know, I'd be a hero for the rest of my life. Yes. And he's, so I listened to some of the things, and I said, um, look, I said, I, I teach this class called the BMI Music Theater Workshop, and my, my suggestion to you is, well, you, re you need a story. If you're doing a Christmas album, you'll need a story. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you want to help us out? I said, well, sure, you know, I, I, George Lucas. So uh, I said, well, I think the, the, the point is, is that if you're doing a Christmas album about Star Wars, then you're doing a story about Christmas in a galaxy far, far away in a time a long, long time ago, yes. right? It's not here. Yes. It's somewhere else. It's, it's not Christmas in New York. It's Christmas in the stars. That's mm -hmm. probably your title. Wow. That, which means that that should probably be your opening number, <laughs> Christmas in the stars. And the concept would be... You know, the universe is so vast, probably Santa can't even cover it all. Maybe it's like his cousin. <laughs> it, it's Sonny Claus. Right. You know? It sounds like a mafia guy. Sonny Claus. Yeah. Anyway, or, and I said, and most importantly, he doesn't have little elves 
back in some far off planet, a galaxy far away. It doesn't have the elves making the little toys. The toys are being made by droids. They're yes. being made by droids. <laughs> and R2 and D2 are there, and you open, you open the thing with, it's Christmas in the stars, that's the name of the tune, and, and Santa is there with Santa's little droids led by C-3PO and R2, oh and they're singing Christmas in the stars. I wrote the number, and, and <laughs> they loved it. I continued writing, you know, and, uh, and we got some contributions from, from other people. Right. Uh, Sammy Khan yeah. sent a song, and, uh, and Tony had a, a kid uh, cousin who was still in high school in New Jersey, and he wanted a song, so it was actually his first recorded song, John, uh, 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 John Bon Jovi. Yeah, yeah, R2-D2, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, no, no, um, no, 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 it, it, the name of his song was actually The Odds Against Christmas. The Odds and Against And the lyric Christmas. was, the odds against Christmas are amazing. It's 365 <laughs> to what? <laughs> All right, so now we're recording this song, and they keep on getting more, more material. So I wrote a song called Merry, Merry Christmas, which the droids are singing. Right. And they're talking about, you know, what are the gifts? You know, I've got a, you know, I've got a... I've got a uh, I've got a scarf mm-hmm. for Skywalker, you know. I got some perfume for Princess Leia, and um, and and uh, and but what can we get the Wookie? So I thought, well, that's a song. So I wrote a song called "What Can You Get a Wookie for Christmas If He Already Owns a Comb." <laughs> By the way, I, I the, title alone it the, sounds the like answer, a lesser the, song. The answer is a brush, mm-hmm. and 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 don't forget, I am presumably uh, a, a high-end. High-end Ivy League professor, mm-hmm. yes. but I'm writing. What can you get a Wookiee for Christmas? So I figured, okay, my job is now at risk. But uh, what the hell? I have right. my, my, I'm doing this for my kid, oh, right? right? So um, I write the song, and I did the demo in a high voice, imitating a droid, and I and they overdubbed me about seven times, so that we called it the Star Wars Intergalactic Droid Choir and Chorale. <laughs> and then, but when, it is you on the no, 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 no. Then it, when it came time to get professionals. To record it, they didn't like it as much as they liked my demo. <laughs> so it's my song, my lyrics, my lyrics. I am the Star Wars droid chorus and chorale. It goes on the radio. It was my first radio hit. I think it went to number, I don't know, oh 43. Uh, and, and, uh, and by the way, we're talking about the creation of a disaster, by the way. It became famous as the worst album ever recorded. <laughs> but now, but now... It's revered. It's like a collector's item. Because everybody yeah. who's 60 years old yep. remembers hearing it when they were 10. Yes, that's And right. they loved it. Yes. And they released the record. And the moment they released the record, unbeknown to us, it was, it was produced uh, uh, by uh, 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 RSO Records. And at that moment, there was a lawsuit that RSO Records was involved in. And in order to avoid any problems, because it looked to them like they were going to lose their lawsuit, they closed their business. And therefore, it was hardly distributed. The album disappeared and has just been, you know, a famous, crazy project. Until such time, until such time as, I mean, I go on the web now and I see everybody going, oh my God, you know, I remember with mom and dad and the kids and we we used to listen to this every year. And, you know, all of a sudden, it's It's not so bad after all. That was my first recording experience. That's incredible. That was the first. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Now, wait, where did you grow up? 
Jersey City, New Jersey. Jersey City, New Jersey. Yeah. Did you come into New York a lot to see All shows? All the time. Uh, well, yeah. Well, at, at the beginning, yeah. uh, when I was a kid, uh, first show I saw, my mom took me, I think I was about uh, uh, 10 or 11, I think it was about 11 maybe, uh, to see My Fair Lady. Of course. Oh, oh yeah. my God. The gateway drug. Julie yeah. Andrews was 20 years old. Yeah. And, oh, the, those Cecil Beaton sets in, and at the... At the, at the uh, uh, you know, at the Mark Hellinger, yeah. and, the, and the two turntables, I, I've never for, forgot it for the rest of my life. And I remember going to see, later on, going to see Bobby Morris in, in How to Succeed. You know, that moment when he came forward on stage, because I was in theater, you know? Yeah. And this is an incredibly important lesson that's probably done more to shape my work than any moment I can think of in the theater. What he, he comes forward on the stage, and you know, he's a young guy on the make, and he's mm -hmm. gotta give himself uh, uh, he'd cheer himself up, and he's right at the right at the, the lip of the stage, looking out at the house. And there's nothing in front of him except the house, or to the side or behind mm -hmm. him. And he and he points his finger out, and he starts singing, "You've got the cool, mm -hmm. clear look of a secret, right? Yeah. A seeker of wisdom and youth." Um, and uh, I went, "Oh my God! There's no mirror in front of him. The only mirror in front of him is in my head." Mm. Yeah. And that's that's when I I realized that that and every everything that I've done since then on stage is about that. We did nine on a bare set. Mm -hmm. It was a white set. Mm -hmm. And you know, in the second yeah. act, Claudia comes up to Guido and her first line is Guido, why did you bring me to this beach? Mm. She's on a bare stage. Right. But you've saved two hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of sand that you don't have to buy. You're using the audience's She's, imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the 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 theater is a lie, yeah. in which we harpoon the imagination of the audience in creating uh, the illusion that's on stage, and that became it still is my mantra, you know, because, mm -hmm. and that's why whenever I do a show, usually it's. I'm in a living room or somewhere, and I just play the score. Mm -hmm. And if the show works then, it's going to work. If it works with nothing, it'll work with everything. Yeah, yeah. But if it doesn't work in that situation, no matter how much money you throw at it, no matter how, how many sets you put on and the lights and, and, and how much you spend on costumes, it's not going to save it if structurally and if the material exactly. doesn't land in a room like the room we're sitting in today. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Play the piano, sing the song, right. and you can play any great musical just like that and you'll see the whole show flash before your eyes. Boy, that's true. When did you first fall in, fall in love with music? Oh, I, I just, uh, from the minute I heard it. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I, I started singing when I was three and four years old mm -hmm. and, and, and start remembering everything. Uh, I, my mother played the piano beautifully mm -hmm. and uh, uh, starting at about, I, I think when I was five, I started playing all by myself. I figured it out. Yeah. Oh, so wow. she, she wrote with a pencil, she wrote the names of the notes on the keys, so mm -hmm. I learned the names of the notes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started making up music immediately. Mm. I won my first composition award at the local Jewish community center of when course. I was seven. Huh. It, was a, oh. it was a composition called Hebrew Melody. Hebrew original. melody. Yes. Hebrew melody. Great. And Specific. it sounded like a Hebrew melody. Yeah. Uh, and it was not very good, but come on, I was only seven. Hey, hey come I was on. Only yeah. seven. Come on. You had no music theory and, yet. And, and that's right. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I took classical lessons, but but I but so I re I wanted to be everything. I wanted to be a classical composer. I wanted to write like Mozart. When I was when I was ten, I became disenchanted with um, classical lessons. At what age? About ten. Okay. Because I wanted to play jazz. Yeah. I heard it on the radio, and so my mother got me a uh, found a uh, 
it was called popular music in those days. And if you weren't playing classical music, playing popular was, music. Okay. And 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 she found a man from Bayonne, New Jersey. I want to say his name because his name was an actual name. His name was Nat Glatt. Nat. Nat Glatt. Nat Glatt. Doesn't it? And he had a business card. He cl- he played club dates. Yeah, I bet he but did. But it was yeah. Well, Nat Glatt came over to my place. He brought what's called a fake book. It's a thousand songs right. with the chords. Right. And he like a melody and chords. Made usually. chords, and he yeah. taught me the chords and how to play them. And you know, I probably could have. After six months, I probably could have played club dates. <laughs> and from that point on, I was doing everything. And then by the time I was 15 and 16 years old, we, in Jersey City, could get on a path train, and and get off in Greenwich Village um, and go to the recently opened, it had been opened, I don't know, for maybe about a month, a place called the Bitter End oh. on Bleecker Street. And across from the Bitter End was the Village Gate, and the Village Vanguard. And I saw Peter, Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan. Uh, um, this was an epic time period to see that kind of music. And, and we were too, all I doing mean, that. Yeah. We were all doing that. Woody Allen, I saw Woody Allen, his first job, he was the opening act at the bitter end, uh, back in the in, in the and and uh, and then across the street, I, you know, I, I saw live. I saw everybody from Thelonious Monk to Miles Davis to Dizzy Gillespie to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, mm-hmm. I, and soaking all of that up, together with the great film scores. Mm-hmm. I, I I would go to a movie even when I was about twelve. I remember going to see a movie called Taras Bulba. Starring Yul Brenner. Okay. He was a Turkish, I don't know, he was Taras Bulba. He was, it was, he was a general, right? Yeah. And he killed, they killed everybody. And the, the, the film school was written by Dmitry Tiamkin. Okay. I remember, I can't remember a thing about the film, but I remember running home and playing the score on the piano. Oh. I could sing you the score. Wow. wow. Uh, because it just stuck in my head. And, and so all of that sort of went into me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I guess you could say that in the same way that some people, and I do, speak a lot of foreign languages, I think I'm familiar with the vocabularies of a lot of musical languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and they all have value and they're all equal. Right. And so I, I think that was probably a, a good thing because that ended up being in my teaching life. And I think a lot of, in the musical theater realm, I think some of our listeners might be surprised to know that yeah. you have such a vast knowledge of all forms other than just this one niche part well, of yeah, the business. Well, yeah, part of it is teaching. I mean, you know, Ned Rorum, a great American composer, oh, yes. Ned Rorum wrote in his diaries that um, artists exult in their own self-discovery, but teachers exult in the self-discovery of others. Yes, yeah. yes, that's yes. Right. And so I've always had that gene in me, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why when Lehman Engel died, yeah. And you know, he had taught the workshop for years, and I was in there with Alan Menken and, and Kleban and Carol Hall. When you were taking the workshop. When we were taking yeah. the workshop. And after Lehman died in 1982, at his, at his um, memorial, I said the, the best memorial is for, to continue his work. And so I took over teaching that for about 25 years. I yeah. did it before. And um, you know, I, I, the list of people who went through that. And by the way, you know, all I did was sit there. But, <laughs> you say that. Well, no. but they, they were ex- extraordinary people, and, and they were still You guide, and you should. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Lehman Engel? Sure. Uh, Lehman Engel uh, was a Jewish man from the South. We used to say he came from Mezuzah, Mississippi. <laughs> But it was really Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi, and he grew up with and was a profound friend of Eudora Welty. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. Uh, Lehman fell in love with music and opera from the very start, and he migrated to New York. He wrote opera, yeah. he wrote com composition, he wrote incidental music for Broadway shows. He was a, a fixture on Broadway because he was the great composer. He was the dean of Broadway conductors. He conducted the opening of Oklahoma and so much more. And it was his idea to create because, and he would always, in, he, in, he would interview people mm. and started writing books about Broadway. He interviewed, he, he tried, he interviewed everybody he knew on Broadway, you know, Boris Aronson, Hal Prince, and say, yeah. how did you get your start? Yeah. And they all said the same thing. They worked, they struggled, they learned, and then at one point somebody made a phone call. <laughs> and that's always the case. You go ask. No, and right. Somebody makes a phone call, and that's why I feel, and I have in so many times, I have made that phone call. Mm -hmm for other people. Mm -hmm. But somebody is so brilliantly gifted, all you need to do is get them in the door. Yeah. And, and the rest, because talent exerts its own pressure to be heard, mm. all by itself. Yeah. Good work just, it, it just like cream that rises to the top. It just has to get out there. It's just too good not to. Mm -hmm. a, a, and, uh, and so um, the workshop is a really wonderful program yeah. uh, that way. and and, and and teaching, you know, has its has its incredible rewards all by itself. And by the way, you know, you learn when you teach. Yes. You know, you learn you learn from your students. I yes. certainly learn from yeah. them. Uh, and uh, you know, I, we talk about specific examples. Um, oh, yeah. But um, well, I get you know. I, well, Robert Lopez, uh, yeah. A.K.A. Bobby Lopez. Yeah. He could give. He could remember it better than I do. But I just remember that. Well, I do remember when they were writing uh, uh, Avenue Q, and they came in with some puppets and did some of the songs, and I looked over my shoulder, at, and I just said to myself, you know, puppets on Broadway. Uh, people are gonna pay a hundred and something dollars a ticket for puppets on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And then they came in and sang Fine, Fine Line, mm -hmm. which was a A plus, A triple plus, internationally brilliant yes. pop ballad. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, they, this, is, this is gonna be a great show. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember, Kid and Yorkie, mm -hmm. writing a show called oh. Next to Normal. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, but it, its original name was Feeling Electric. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you know about that. And, and uh, well, so many others. Yeah. Um, I remember Ed Kleban, you know, oh, trying out his lyrics for a chorus line. Tell us a little bit about. Oh well, Ed 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 was the Ed was sort of the senior one of the senior guys. Well, there yeah. was Judd Walden who had written Raisin. Yes, of course. Uh, but Ed Ed was penniless. And he was, uh, and he had been in the workshop a few years before I went in. Mm -hmm. I went in with the same year that Alan Menken. Well, mm -hmm. we were just talking about it. Yeah. I was in graduate school doing mm -hmm. a PhD, and Alan was still in his senior year at NYU. Mm -hmm. And Ed was then. Ed was wonderful, and Ed was penniless, mm -hmm. uh, and he was working at um, was working at um, uh, Columbia Records mm -hmm. uh, with the great Goddard Lieberson, oh, yes. who, who created the cast album. Literally. That's right. And and Ed. Started a project uh, based on uh, uh, the novel *A Thousand Clowns*, and he wrote brilliant material, a whole score, and um, and there was a producer, and Lehman introduced Ed around, and this was going to be Ed's, you know, debut, and the author of the book did not give the dramatic rights to oh, anybody, man. and so all that work Ed had done. He, he had, well, I'm not going to say for naught, because when I was writing a show based on Fellini's Eight and a Half, I didn't have the rights, and I didn't expect it to be produced, and I knew what had happened to Ed. I was writing, I was writing to keep my pencil sharp. It was only my, my third year in the workshop, 
you know, and, and, and Lehman said, you want me to start a show? I started, I started a show because the only way you can learn to write is to write. And you write from where you get your best ideas. Mm-hmm. If you have a good idea, start writing. Mm-hmm. I, did, I was not writing thinking, oh boy, I'm going to get this on a stage. I, I was writing it because I had a passion for the material. Right. And if you have a passion for the material and you care about it and you're getting great ideas from it, that's how you learn how to write. Mm-hmm. You know, and don't worry about getting produced. You'll, you'll yeah, yeah. get to be a good <laughs> first writer. First thing first. Yeah. First things first. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and so Ed had uh, written that and he, it was devastating. Uh, particularly because he was in his little office at, uh, at CBS before it had been submitted for rights. Mm-hmm. And uh, and door was closed after hours and Ed was playing through his his score of uh, A Thousand Clowns. Mm-hmm. And the door opened up and it was Goddard Lieberson. And Goddard said, what's that, Ed? And Ed said, oh, no, 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 it's nothing. And he started covering the music with his hands. And, and Lieberson said, no, 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 what is it? Did you write that? And Ed said, uh, yes, it, uh, yeah, it's a musical I'm writing about A Thousand Clowns. And Gleber said, well, well let's, let, let, let's hear it. So they sat down together. I'm, I, can, I can tell you a word. This is exactly Ed's story to me. Yeah. Uh, and so they sat down, and they played it forehand. They played, you know, Leverson played, uh, played the right hand. Ed played the left hand. <laughs> and they went through the score, finished writing the score. And Ed looked at Goddard and said, uh, well, what do you think? And Leverson said, I think you have found, yourself, found your way out of this building. Uh-huh. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, there was Ed writing another show in which he absolutely decided, okay, no more, no more rights. I'm going to make the story up myself. I'm going to call it Gallery. Mm-hmm. It's a woman wandering through a gallery. Every time she sees a famous painting, I'll write uh, a song about it, and it's going to be a weird kind of take on that. So, for example, uh, he saw this... Um, he saw this... Um, painting called Gauguin Shoes, right? Yes. P- painted by Van Gogh. Uh, and, and Gauguin had been a banker. So he writes this tap number uh, for a banker who wants to go, get, go off to Tahiti. And if I had Gauguin <laughs> Shoes, tick-a-bitty-tap-tap-a-tick, right? Yeah. Okay. And then he wrote another song called uh, The Beach of saint marie de la mer which is a, a beach, uh, uh, a beach painting by Van Gogh. Uh-huh. And so he wrote it for three secretaries in New York, Deciding, oh yeah, you know what? That's where we're going to spend our vacation <laughs> at the beach at Saint Marie de la Mer, right? The only place to go, the beach at Saint Marie de la Mer, made famous by Van Gogh. Something, <laughs> something, something, something. The beach at uh, it's the only place to be, the beach at Saint Marie de la Mer, by the sea, which was hilarious. <laughs> Saint Marie de la Mer by the sea, yeah. and uh, and um, he was writing that, yeah. and and simultaneously, just just by happenstance. A man named uh, Michael Bennett had, been, had done a series of taped interviews with dancers about how they had gotten their start, and he thought it could be a play, it could be a musical. Mm-hmm. And so he couldn't get his first choice for composer, so he, he, he hired uh, and brought in uh, his favorite dance music arranger, Marvin Hamlish, for the music. Right. And they had uh, James Kirkwood and right. Dati and and uh, he didn't have a lyricist, and so he put it out there. And I think uh, Lehman recommended Ed, and Ed Ed went to his uh, his audition and his meeting with Michael Bennett. Now this is word for word Ed's story. 
because I, I know the story. Yes. And so Ed went to see Michael. Actually, I heard this story before they, he actually started writing. So, so Ed, well, Ed was, of course, Ed had great confidence. You know, Ed said, he said, I played him 10 perfect songs. I said, well, of course, Ed, every, every song you write <laughs> is perfect. He said, and then he asked Ed, he asked him, he said, you know, have you, you ever gotten anything about, have you written anything about dancers? And Ed said, well, you know, uh, funny you should ask that. I've got this show called Gallery. And I, you know, I, a woman going around and she sees a painting and I write this sort of uh, off the wall uh, number inspired by it. So there's, I, there's a piece in, there's a number in my show Gallery uh, when the woman uh, sees a, a painting by Mondrian called Broadway Boogie Woogie. Mm. So I wrote this song about gypsy dancers looking for work. And Michael says, play it. And Ed plays the song, and Michael says, you got the job. If you want to see uh, of, a, of a little portrait of Ed Kleban, uh, that was Ed. That really is. Unbelievably Ed. witty, yeah. funny, adorable. He made a zillion dollars. What were some of the great lessons that you learned from Lemon Angle that you still take with you today? Oh, there's, they're, they're numerous, and, and, and they're brilliantly explicated by him. Uh, uh, I think... The very first thing uh, that Lehman would say at the beginning of a new crop of people, and I still say it because I just do what he did, is he quoted a line from E.E. E. Cummings. Since feeling is first, who pays attention to the syntax of things will never wholly kiss you. Wow, that's good. I like that. Because you see, and my legendary agent, Flora Roberts, if you went to see something, she said, well, you saw it, yeah? And, and she said, well, did you feel anything? Mm. Feeling is everything. Mm. The whole point of the theater, the whole point of what we do is for you to feel something, to have an emotion. And we can't just let you hope that you'll feel this or that. We're supposed to, as, as authors, lead you into, into that feeling. So the question is, well, how, how do we do that? How, 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 how do we do that? Well, one of, the, one of the very important things we learn is if you're, if you're on the nose and you try to get somebody to feel something, sometimes it has the reverse effect. Right. Uh, and, and, but if in fact, uh, if in fact you you have somebody in, an, in a terrible situation, and, and, and instead of complaining about it, they, they're able to find a way to overcome it. And Lehman would always tell this story mm -hmm. to the class. A man, a young, a young uh, uh, executive, right, with, at 11 o'clock at night, wants to do some extra work and goes up to the 46th floor of, a, of, of an office building and comes out of the elevator, and there's a washerwoman who looks like she's in her 70s, on her knees, on the floor, with a pail and a brush, scrubbing the floor. And she says, oh my goodness gracious, oh dear me, at your age, at this, at this time of night, to be doing this, let me help you up. How, how could you, what a terrible thing for you to be in at this stage in your life. And she says, yeah, that's right. She says, and you know, my, my lousy husband left me with, 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 with three kids, and, and, and uh, so uh, that's, you know, and I got to sit here and do this all the time, and, I, and my knees are killing me. So that's one scenario. Now here's another scenario. 
same office building, same junior executive, same elevator, 11 o'clock at night, comes out of the elevator, same woman in the same position. Oh, you poor woman, at your age, to be scrubbing the floor, et cetera, et cetera. She says, yeah, well, true, true. Uh, you know, my marriage failed and, and, and uh, my, my, my husband uh, abandoned me, but uh, I still have three wonderful children and I've put them all through college <laughs> and now they're married and they have children of their own. So who do you have sympathy for? Who do you go for? Yeah. The one who, who goes against. Right. And, and Lehman would say, the mechanism that's working here emotionally is that same mechanism that we see when Romeo and Juliet are on the stage and she's on the balcony and he's climbing up the trellis and she reaches down to take his hand and he reaches up to take her hand but he's on the front, he can't go any higher and she can't bend any lower and their hands are straining to touch each other and they're two inches apart and they're straining and Lehman says, and we in the audience strain, we feel that strain as well. And because they refuse to experience the emotion that they should be experiencing, it gets thrown into the lap of the audience and we experience it for them. That's his theory. It may be a cockamamie theory, but you know what? If that gets writers to write, and so, you know, as an example, you know, when I was called by Tommy Toon in, uh, I guess, uh, uh, early September of 1989, and he was with a show that was in trouble in, in, out of town in Boston called right. Grant Hotel. Yep. And he said, uh, Yeston, I have a room for you at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel with the piano. Come save the show. <laughs> oh, that's oh. all he said? <laughs> well, he's, he, we're pals. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and actually, he had made the call when he did My One and Only in, I think it was 86, after mm -hmm. we had done Nine, and I schlepped up to Boston with Peter Stone and Mike Nichols to help rescue My One and Only. Okay. And actually, that worked out great. Yeah, it did. Uh, and, uh, um, and, and so I, I, went, I, I went to, uh, to Boston, and, uh, and the first thing I had to do, most importantly, was to sit down with the authors Wright, Wright and Forrest, who were brilliant men, both in their 80s. They had written Song of Nor Norway, they had written Take My Hand, I'm a Stranger, Kismet. Kismet. Yeah, keen. And so, and so I, I said, gentlemen, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not the worst nightmare in other writers in town when you're in show and there are difficulties. I I'm really here just to give you the best advice I can. Yeah. And, uh, and then one of them looked at the other and said, oh, he said, oh, look how young he is. Doesn't he remind you of us when we first met Cole Porter? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, oh, my goodness gracious. Um, so I said, look, I said, um, you've written a very worthy score. It's, it's a very worthy show. I think, I think you and, and the director aren't on the same page. Tommy wants to do a continuous music all night, music playing all the time. You have a very literal show that you began to write in the 1950s. Yes. And so... You know, you want the yeah. You you're on a plane that you want to go to Los Angeles, and the director's flying it to Toronto. Mm -hmm. So maybe you have to think about a different director who will do a literal version of what you've written, or maybe make some adjustments to what you have, mm -hmm. in for this director's concept, which is dancing and singing all night, and yeah. terrific motion. And I think he has a pretty good concept. No, no, dear boy, we would never, never, never do anything to put out of work we're going to go ahead wow and and uh, 
I said, right. I said, well, you know, there's a lot to rewrite. Yes, well, you know, there's not a lot of time, you know, and uh, I said, well, you got about three weeks. Oh, well, oh you know, as if uh, Jimmy, uh, uh, um, I can't think of his name in a second. Um, oh, Johnny Mercer. As oh, Johnny, yes. Johnny Mercer used to say, uh, two couplets a week, two couplets a week. I said, at the rate of two couplets a week, it's going to take 10 years to fix the show. <laughs> you know, dear boy, you must jump in the boat and grab it over. Mm. All we care about is that you, you must be credited for your work. And I said, no. Oh, they were classy. No, they were too classy. I said, no, I'm, I don't exist. I'm, I'm just here to help and, you know. And so I found out years later that when they were young, the reason they said that, because when they were young, they were called in to help somebody else on a show, and they thought they should get credit for their work, yeah. and he wouldn't give it to them. Oh. So they made, they, made, they made a pact that if that ever happened to them, they would make sure that the kid right. would get some credit. Uh-huh. So, um, so we, we got together, and so and so there we are. You would write with them then, or, or, or and, uh, we saw each other all the time. I wrote. I know they were doing. They were rewriting, and I was rewriting at the same time. Gotcha. And then I was, and so, or or replacing. Yeah. You know. So so um, there was a scene in which the young Carol, David Carroll, who was a magnificent. Mm. We love to talk about him on the podcast. David. And, and um, you know, David looked like he was about 26, even though he was about 32. <laughs> and he was so gorgeous. Yeah. And Lillian Montevecchi was, you know, the, 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 the aging ballerina. So yes. Lillian looked like she was in her mid-40s, and right. he was in his early 20s. And so you know, it, didn't look, it didn't look right, but he had a break into her room and uh, 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 when she was on stage right. and start to steal her, her pearls and she walks in and catches him. And she says, what are you doing in my room? And he says, um, this is the scene, uh, I, I've come to breathe the air that you breathe. And then my, the, the scene is the scene and somehow um, he starts to sing, now with you standing there and love beginning to grow, the trumpets blow, it, they blow crescendo, they blow fortissimo, all my love. Oh, it was a perfectly fine operatic t- type song. Mm-hmm. It wasn't working. Right. And so um, I was tasked with f- figuring out a way to fix that. Yeah. And, uh, and Peter Stone was there as well. So, I, so you know, we all do everything. Everybody sits and does everything. You should know that. Anybody who wants to know how the theater works, what you do is you get a name. The name is what your job is, right? Yeah. Lyricist, composer, book writer, right? You make your deal. Now you know what you, the money you're going to make <laughs> and who you are, right? right? And then once you do that, anything that you give to anybody else, they own. Right. Right? That way nobody can say, hey, I, I, I wrote that line. Right? So I said to Peter, I said, I think the problem is right from the start. I said, if we're going to kick this off. And she says, what are you doing in my room? And he says, I've come to breathe the air that you breathe. I think she should pick up the house phone and say, you have 10 seconds to come up with a better line or I will call the police. Brilliant. <laughs> so, so he does. And, and he says, no, he says, I'm a fan, all right? And I thought, right, the problem is, the writing problem is, he has to fall in love with her immediately. Right. And more than that, it's impossible because he's half, well, almost half her age. Mm-hmm. And it's impossible. And it can't happen. But it does happen. And so I wrote a song called Love Can't Happen, mm. which is layman's lesson. Yeah. Right to the opposite. Wow. Love can't happen, but it has. Right. So I'll give you another example. Same, same yeah. show. Same show. Second problem. Same song. In the second act, David Carroll gets shot through the heart. <laughs> he's, he's stealing, again, he's stealing, he's stealing the money from the German businessman so that he can 
lib and 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 uh, and he uh, he and he hears the businessman trying to rape Flemshin in the mm -hmm, next room. Mm -hmm. So he runs in and stops him. And they, what are you doing in this room? And and and, and there's a struggle. And the businessman pulls out a gun and bang. And in the play that was on stage that I saw in Boston, David comes running forward and he reprises, now with you standing there and <laughs> beginning to grow. That's what's, that was the show, oh, wow. of course. And so, and so here was this moment and uh, I hadn't slept in two and a half weeks and it was uh, mid afternoon and Tommy said, listen, you gotta write him a song. I said, for what? He said, you know, when he gets shot. I said, well, yeah, That's he, all. I said he's dead. He said, yeah, I know he's dead, he's gotta write. I said, no, he's dead, he can't sing, he's dead. And Tommy said, he said, yeah, I know, but he, he, he's the star of the show. He said, yeah, I know, he says, but, uh, I, I said, and he's gotta have a song. I said, yeah, but he's dead. He said, no, he's gotta have a song. So I disconsolately walked out of the theater, trying to figure out, what am I gonna write for a man who's just been thr shot through the heart? And I had with me, I always carried with me a copy of the novel by Vicki Baum that was Grand Hotel. So I, I was, so I, I said to myself, you know, I, I, I'm gonna have to kill myself because I'm not gonna come up with this song. And the minute I thought, kill myself, I thought of Ed Cleavan is now back in the picture again. <laughs> I once said to Ed, because Ed was so neurotic and crazy. I once asked Ed, yes. I, I said, Ed, why do, you, why do you write lyrics? He said, I guess I'm just neurotic that way. <laughs> so, so he told me a story once. He said, yeah, he said, he said he tried to kill himself. He said, but he, he went through all the methods of killing himself, you know, shot, gun, hanging, whatever. And he realized they're all too painful. So he said he thought the only way to kill himself which maybe would be fast and not so bad, it was if he tried to eat a seeded roll very, very quickly and choke on it. <laughs> <laughs> or a dry bagel. So, so I'm laughing to my, ha ha, right. you know, suicide. And as I'm laughing, I'm turning to my left because I've gone around the corner uh, from the theater in Boston, and there's a Chinese restaurant. I said, and I hadn't eaten anything. I said, oh yeah, I know what I'll do. I'll use the Cleveland method. I'll order an egg roll instead of a roll. I'll eat it fast. I'll choke on it, I'll kill myself, I won't have to write the song. Exactly. So, I, I sat in there and I ordered an egg roll and a cup of tea. And suddenly, God spoke to me, I guess, and I thought, wait a minute, when you, when you die, when you, kill, when you die, mm -hmm. isn't your entire life supposed to flash before you in yeah. a split second? I thought, so if you get shot through the heart, wait a minute, let me, let me read the, the novel and I opened up the novel, and he gets shot in the novel, and Vicki Baum writes, there lay the Baron in a pool of blood. He had been a soldier in the war. He had, ridden, he had rid on horses through fields. Bullets whizzed past him, he never... And I thought, okay, so he'll come running forward after we hear the shot. Mm -hmm. and, he'll, and he'll sing his whole life, you know? And he'll think that he got to the railroad station with the roses, just like he promised the ballerina. I'm here, Elizaveta, with the roses. And he'll say, my whole life has led to, led to this. I was a soldier in the war, yeah. right? I ran, I ran horse, horse, horses through fields. Oh, no, not a, no, no bullet, they whistled past me. No bullets, and, and I thought, and as he's singing that, his white shirt is gradually turning redder and redder and redder. So you see, when you conceive of a number or a moment in a musical, sometimes you conceive not only of, of the intro and the premise, but the lyric and the music mm -hmm. and the costume and the action. And, and, and so by the end of it, by the end of the song, 
we'll have a blackout and we'll do the shot again. So the whole song happens in the instant of time between the shot, the, right? The sound right. of the shot and the moment when, the sh when that's killed him. Wow. And so, and again, it's this, it's, I guess, I didn't realize it at the time, it's a realize, oh, I'm doing the same thing that Layman, right? He's dead, so go to the opposite. Right. He's still alive. And he was remembering everything that led him to that in a split second, yeah. in a moment. And I went and I, I, you know, I ate the egg roll and did not. <laughs> Thank goodness. And, I, and, I, and I, I told Tommy the idea and he said, great. He said, you know, we'll give him a little squeegee in his pocket, you know, from his head. Mm -hmm. We'll squeeze it and, well, you know. I mean, that, 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 that was in incredible. And, he, and David was amazing. And it solved the problem, you know. Yeah. So, so I think, going back to your original question, which is, what, what did Lehman teach us? Yeah. Um, he, he taught us, he taught us that, that principle of, um, of everything in a show being an arrow going forward and pushing the plot forward. And generally speaking, he would always look, he would always say, he would have us analyze Shakespearean plays. Say, mm. outline, outline, you know, uh, how, uh, uh, as you like it, and put the outline on one page. And see how what happens in a scene shoots an arrow over the next scene and lands after it, yeah. right? So you're always you're always pushing everything forward, and and you know it's it's very easy to say. Right. And then and then he would talk about you know comedy, mm -hmm. and he would uh, and 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 how tough it is, and how you need to get permission to laugh, mm -hmm. and he would talk about a kind of a song that he called the charm song. Oh yes. A charm song is a song that's. Uh, that's amusing, but not ha ha funny, <laughs> of an optimistic nature. Yes. I am as corny as corn. Yep. There are lots and lots of charms, right? And they're very entertaining, very often dance numbers. And then, of course, a musical scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and so, um, and of course, it has to make you feel something. I think, you know, I think if he had had the right words, he probably would have come up with Frank Lesser's great and extraordinary principle. Which is, which is that um, songs happen in musicals where exclamations happen in language, which is why so many songs begin with an exclamation. Yeah. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Mm -hmm. I hate men. Mm -hmm. You put all those things together, it's not that there are rules that you have to follow, but there are principles right. having to do with human psychology more, more than anything else. Yeah. And uh, so I, th I think that applying them uh, is really the task, the task of the writer, and of course, every every rule will have its exceptions, right. you know. Um, and and I think that so I think fixing it at Grand Hotel was was a huge lesson, certainly for me. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart. You'll find music, dance, and acting studios complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. When did you first meet Tommy Toon? I met Tommy Toon because um, Mario Friday, the first book writer of nine, had submitted it to the Richard Rogers Prize, and we won the first prize. And we were supposed to, we were supposed to um, go downtown after $40,000 and do a production. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Friday had, um, was a member of the Outer Critics Circle, and mm-hmm. it was the time of the Outer Critics Circle uh, dinner. Mm-hmm. It was uh, 1981, and, uh, and Mario was sitting right next to um, Tommy, who was the guest of honor then. Mm-hmm. And he said to Tommy, he said, you know, uh, I write musicals. Uh, I have written a musical of Fellini's Eight and a Half. We call it Nine. So Tommy started laughing hysterically. And Mario said, uh, no, he said, uh, really, I, I, really, we just won an award from it. We're going to have a protection of it. You know what? He said, I live in your building on West 55th Street. We live in the same apartment building. You know, I live on the third floor. You're on the 11th floor. He said, I'll, I'll take a, a cassette of the, of the, of the performance of the, of the score from the O'Neill, uh-huh. and I'll put it uh, through your mailbox slot, and you can listen to it. Really? And the next morning, I got a call from this man who said, hello, my name is Tommy Toon. You don't know me. I've just heard your cassette, and I must direct this show. When can we meet? I mean, uh, we hear uh, serendipitous things happening, but I mean, that, it's, it's just, it's amazing. It, it One kept person up, it's crazy. connected to another. And, I mean, and, and, and so, we, you know, we started getting to work, and then, and then it, it started getting really serious, but, uh, and, but we didn't have the rights. And so when it came time to do a workshop, you know, um, one had to get the rights to the show. And Barry Brown and Fritz Holt, who were wonderful producers, mm-hmm. tried to get uh, the rights to it initially when I had started writing it. Mm-hmm. But they had a lawyer who was not actually Fellini's lawyer. Oh. And so he, he, it was not useful and they never got them. But in the intervening time, I actually found out the name of Fellini's lawyer and the contact. And I thought, okay, well, if, if we're really going to do this and go get permission and see if we can get. Uh, Paramount Pictures to put up the money for this workshop that we want to do. Um, I have to call this lawyer and get the rights. At the time, I was, I was. Uh, uh, this was um, the the spring of 1981, and it was the end of the uh, academic year. And I was the director of undergraduate studies, and I had to supervise the uh, comprehensive examination for the seniors <laughs> and grade their papers. Right. 
but I did have a window of time in which if I could go to Italy, if I had to do that, I, I'd do it. Although I did not have very much money. I had at least a little some money in my bank mm-hmm. account. And, um, and so I called this, I called this man, his name was Sotero Salas, Mr. Salt. And uh, I, got the, I called at six o'clock in the morning and, uh, and his phone answered and um, he said, pronto. And I said, oh, hello, Mr. Salas. My name is Maury Yeston and I am an American composer and I had written a musical based on Fellini's masterpiece movie, Eight and a Half, and I, I would like to come to Rome next week to buy the dramatic rights from you. And he said, I'm sorry, Mr. Yeston, I, I do not speak English. <laughs> <laughs> and because I, I had played jazz in Florence uh, in my misspent youth, and, okay. uh, and I'd studied a little uh, uh, of the language at Yale, I said, uh, non fa niente, mi chiamo Mori Yeston, sono compositore americano. <laughs> Io ho scritto un spettacolo musicale basato su questo capolavoro film di Fellini, otto e mezza, e voglio andare la prossima settimana uh, in, in Roma uh, per comprare i riti drammatici. So he goes, bravo, signor, yes. <laughs> so, anyway, it's, it's, it's a longer story, but basically, I, I went there and uh, with my attorney, and then we, we worked it out. And Fellini gave us the rights Incredible. to do the show. And don't forget, this was just my project in my third year of the workshop. I never expected to get the rights. I never expected to be produced or anything right. like that. Right. You know. But so just you know. Yeah. So you just right. Don't yeah, write. Just right. Yeah. Just right. Yeah. And what is it about uh, Tommy Toon that makes you return to him so much as a collaborator? Well, and him to me. Uh, oh yes. Well, 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 he, well, we just. Well, you know what? Sometimes you 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 find somebody who get who just gets you, and I get him, and I think we see the theater the same way. We both are minimalists, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't think it's about a lot of scenery and a lot of this and that. We think that it's the sung word and the spoken word, and we also believe in 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 uh, dialogue and dance. Mm-hmm. Which I think I love the element of dance, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think that, and then it it just happened the way it happened. We we did nine, and um, then he wanted to do my one and only, and we we slept up. You know, something really wonderful happened to my one and only. Uh, I think Peter Stone was a very very funny man, and also a brilliant a brilliant fixer. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, and uh, my one and only. Starred uh, the gr- one of the stars beside Tommy and Twiggy was the great tap dancer Honey Coles, the mm, legendary yeah. Honey Coles. And you know, up there, and it just wasn't working. And and um, and you know, hun- Honey would do a step here and a step there. And Peter, I'll never. This is one of the great lessons. Peter said, um, he said, look, he said, because he got he got the right to interpolate the book, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep Honey in the barbershop in the barber chair, all during the first act, and, and a third of the way through the second. A third of the way through the second. Because everybody had bought a ticket to see Honey Calls. Yeah. He was a big name, right? And so, and so, and then Peter wrote one line. And so, and so Honey is in the show, they go to him, he talks, you know, he's, he's the advisor of, of the young flyer who needs advice and love. Mm-hmm. And finally, a third of the way, through the uh, second act, you know, uh, uh, Twiggy has left him. And Tommy comes running to Honey, and Honey's sit, still sitting in the bar. Says, Mr. Jangles, or oh, I don't know what his name is. You know, she said, what am I going to do, this and that? you got to help me. And Peter wrote, wrote one line for Honey, which was, uh, I, 
I, you know, well, I, I believe this boy's finally going to get me out of this chair. <laughs> and the whole house came down yeah. and applauded and screamed. And that, that's a great lesson. Where did the idea of Titanic come from? Me. He, all you. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, about 1985, in the, in, the, in the fall of 1985, uh, I was still teaching. Uh, and um, a, uh, I, I was part-time teaching then. Yeah. Uh, I had won a Tony Award. I said, you know, let me, let me finish yeah, I think you, yeah. Uh, and uh, I read, we all read that uh, Robert Ballard had discovered the Titanic. Right. And it started me thinking about just, just in terms of intellectual history, just in terms of, of, of societal history, the 20th century is coming to an end. It's mm -hmm. 1985. Mm -hmm. We began to see there's a millennium coming. And I thought about, you know, and we learn about what, what that is. And, you know, and I was keenly aware that, you know, the century really, 20th century really begins around 1910. You know, uh, uh, La Mer, uh, W.C. writes La Mer in, 19, in 1911. Stravinsky writes uh, Writer's Spring in 1913. Schoenberg and the Atonalists start writing about 12 Tomies in 1909, 1910. That's when it all started. Uh, symbolist poetry, the, uh, 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 modern architect. All of this starts around nine, in the 1910. And so I had a sense that, you know what, this, this wonderful chapter in, in, in world history, cultural history, seems to be coming to a close. It's going to be the year 2000. And I thought, as I was thinking about the guy just found the Titanic, I think that's, that's probably the fundamental lesson that we have had to learn in this century, which is so characterized by, if anything else, the advancement of un, unprecedented technological advances, what we had done. And yet, in the same way, the reason they didn't have any lifeboats on the Titanic was because they had an unqualified faith in the infallibility of technology. Yes. And they thought, this ship is going to be its own lifeboat. It can't sink, so why do we need them? And I thought, you know what? I think that may be the story of our age. And I just had it in my mind. And then, just a few months later, in, in, in early the next year, the space shuttle blew up. Yeah. And I went, uh-oh, we haven't learned this lesson. This is, in my head, the most, important, the most important story to tell. And I started thinking about how to do it. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I got passionate about it, and I started getting musical ideas. And uh, I was busy writing other things as well. And uh, we had done Phantom, Phantom for example. Yeah. And, and so finally, um, uh, when we fixed Grand Hotel, I remember we were standing in the back of the theater uh, talking to Mike Nichols. Like, we called Mike in uh, a week before we opened to get his opinion. And at, at that meeting, so Peter said, so what are you writing next, Yeston? And I said, well, I'm writing Titanic. And he said, and he said well, that's my show. I said, the hell is your show? I've been writing it since 1985. He said, well, no, what I mean is I want to write it. I want to write it with you. Can I write it with you? And I said, yes. <laughs> We can write it together. He said, but first I have to finish the Will Rogers Follies, right? So, yes. oh yeah, thanks. Fair. But in any case, so we finally got down to writing it in the early 90s and wow. got, down, got down to writing it, yeah. you know, and, um, and never looked back. You know, and everybody says, how could you know all of the things? How could you, how could you make a, a, a musical out of the worst maritime disaster in history in which 2,000 people died? Well, it's a good question. Well, because it's got a great lesson. And 2,000 people died, but the other 1,300 were incredibly brave. And there's some, uh, uh, the greatest uh, nature of humanity is 
in the people who sacrificed themselves so that others would live, yeah. or who behaved incredibly bravely, yeah. or in fact, who were victimized. And, and the lesson is we can never again lock people in, you know, because they're a third, the third class. Right. That class system, you know, was, went down with that ship. The whole Edwardian mm -hmm. age went down with that ship. And that's one of the reasons I wrote Titanic. Because because of that system, people died. Yeah. And that's why I said to Tommy, I think the best way to do it is to have the same actors play the first class and the third class. Because we'll be telling them visually whether you lived or died depended upon what you were wearing. Right. And that can never happen again. Mm. And so that was, that was the passion. And then, of course, everybody said, well, you know, people are walking in and they know the ending. But I knew, of course, right from the start that, you know, Hal Prince used to say the thing that he loved most in theater, or he certainly told it to me, was when the audience knows a secret that the people on stage don't know. Yep. And so I, the minute I, I knew that I was going to bring out the stoker and he was going to kiss his girlfriend goodbye mm -hmm. and sing, Fairly Well, my darling, mm -hmm. I'll be back before a fortnight has passed. Go, oh, my God. Yeah. I know he's going to sink, yeah. but he doesn't. And so, and, and, and for the whole first act, until anything happens, they're having the time of their lives. Oh, yeah. And so, and so I just, I knew, I, I saw the show, I knew it, I believed in it, and I just sort of went straight ahead. Phantom. Phantom. Phantom was another story. I mean, um, oh yeah. Well, you know, there's self-motivated shows, you know, and uh, and I guess it never would have occurred to me, but once it did, I had to kind of make it up, you know, mm -hmm. in the same way that I made Nine up, mm -hmm. you know, I, that was my favorite movie, and, and I made Titanic up. Mm -hmm. I didn't make Grand Hotel up. That it was a show right. already. But Jeffrey Holder. Uh, asked us to, to uh, magnificent guy asked to have a meeting with me and Arthur Copit and said I love Nine, and I've got this book by Gaston Leroux, it's the Phantom of the Opera, and I want you guys to write a show, and I'll direct it. Mm -hmm. And I said, uh, I, count me out. <laughs> he said, Well, I said, come on, it's a horror movie. Claude Rains gets acid thrown in his face in one movie, he jumps into the scent. I said, what are we going to do next? Mothra meets Godzilla, the, 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 the musical? He said, no, 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 no. He said, look, he said, you know, look, just read the book and think about it. Let's have another meeting. So, read the book, and we came back to another meeting, and I, I, I said, uh, I've thought about it. And, you know, this happens in the 19th century. And in the 19th century, if, if you had a mad sister, you locked her in the attic. Mm -hmm. You hit her away. Mm -hmm. So if this guy, if this person was born misshapen, we didn't throw acid in his face, he was born in this 19th century world, they would have to hide him. And since he was born into the opera world, they would hide him down below the opera in the sewers. Mm -hmm. And and as misshapen as he is on the, outs in, on the outside, and as hideous his environs are, right? He, he, he hears, he is raised from the time he's born, the magnificent masterpieces of music with the greatest singers in the world wafting down through the crypts. And it's like mother's milk to him. Yeah. And, he, and he doesn't live in a sewer because he steals the most beautiful scenery in the world. From His bed is the bed from Lohengrin, and his garden is the garden from Peleus and Melisande. And, 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 and in the same way that he wears a mask, he's masked his environment. Mm -hmm. And in fact, 
that's the answer to, in the great scene in the movie when he rips his mask off and there's a close-up and the audience screams, you can't do that because from the third balcony of the St. James, you can't see that. I said, so why don't we just, he pulls down the mask of, of, and reveals the sewer that he's living in, mm -hmm. pulls down that scenery. And I thought, you know, this could work. So uh, we, we start writing it. And then we almost finished writing it. Um, and, uh, and there was a producer that wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they hired a, a, a set designer. And then uh, they, were, they were raising money. And then, you know, Andrew announced that he wanted to do Phantom because there, there, there were already five Phantoms, Ken Hill, et cetera. Right. And so the producers okay. thought, you know, if they're going to put this on in London, you know, by the time they do that, it'll be there. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 they'll bring it here. And mm -hmm. so, you know, easy come, easy go. And was I disappointed? Yes, of course I was. But at the same time, I said, okay, I've written a French score. I'll, you know, I'll find a French project. Right. You know, I mean, nobody, only my kids know what song in this show was actually a song I cut from that show. <laughs> you know, and, and everybody who writes is, to a certain extent, things like that can happen. Of course. Uh, and, and so um, I pulled myself together and, you know, and actually, uh, and uh, just at that moment, Placido Domingo went to Alan Carr and asked me to write the life of Goya. Goya, yeah. And so I said, oh my God, you know, yes. And so I just threw myself into that. Yeah. And, and so, um, but then when we ultimately did the show, uh, it worked out, you know. I mean, and, and, and my so goodness. so many productions. Oh, I mean, the mm -hmm. show that never made it to Broadway, it's, it's well, like been done everywhere it's the, else. It's I the mean, greatest hit never to play Broadway. Cast recording, I mean, it's, yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah, all of those things happened, yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, I guess the lesson is, you know, good work, cream can rise to the top sometimes. That's if right. it's really, really good, That's Arthur right. did magnificent work. The reason Frank Young knew about it was because, you know, when our, project fell apart, I said, look, Arthur, I said, you're the book writer, I'm the composer, you know, you take the book, mm -hmm. you know, I'll take, you know, mm -hmm. uh, thanks for all the ideas you gave me for the score, uh, you know, and uh, you can thank me for all the ideas I gave you for the book, you know, do a play. And what happened was, is that he, 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 he ultimately sold his, our book, right, to NBC, and they did a miniseries char char starring Charles Dance. It was very successful, oh, wow. and Frank Young saw that, and that's where that's, that's when he fell in. Yeah. So you see, you just never know. Yeah. You never that's know. a good, another yeah. good theme of this conversation. It's true. Um, what is the ideal uh, composer book writer relationship, or can you explain a little bit about like your relationship? Well, I, you know, I can I can yeah. say it. Okay. It can't be. It's just. It always has to be us. It can't be my department, your department. Mm. It, can't, it has to be, look, at the end of the day, because your name is on it, you're gonna take crap or get the praise for everything in your department, right? So at the end of the day, you know, no matter, whether I gave Arthur an, uh, an idea or Tommy an idea or Tom an idea, right? At the end of the day, you're responsible for your own work, right? And if everybody loves it, you're gonna get the credit for it. And if somebody has a problem with it, I didn't like that rhyme, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna take the, 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 the criticism. And, but that's not, but the way it works is, you get together and you talk the show into existence. And it's not yours and mine and this and that, you talk it into existence. Peter and I, just, we're writing Titanic, we, we, we we met every Tuesday at the same Chinese restaurant on Second Avenue in the <laughs> 70s, right? 
and, and talk, talked about the show, and then we went back to his place. So we came up with ideas, right? And I had already shaped the show, essentially, but, th but that doesn't matter because you keep making changes all the time. And so I knew how we were gonna start. And I had figured, I figured what the opening was. And we had figured that we're gonna have these three Irish girls, and, I, and, and we figured that we're gonna have a group of three. They're gonna be three Irish girls, uh, and, and that's the third class. And there's gonna be three main people in the upper echelon, the owner, the captain, mm -hmm. and the architect. Mm -hmm. And when I first sat down to write the show, I asked myself, who would I be in this story? Answer, I'm the writer, I'm the creator, I'd be the architect. The architect yes. So I related to Mr. Andrews, right? So I knew what he is and what he wants to do. And the captain, I know what he is. And now, and of course, Mr. Rismay, the owner, and he's the one who's pushing for them to make a speed record and things like that. So we had those guys. Then, we decided we would have three incredibly important uh, witnesses mm -hmm. in, the, in the crew. And they would be the stoker right. and uh, uh, the radio man right. and, uh, and uh, the lookout. The lookout. Why? Because the stoker is the witness that they're going too fast. He's down there saying, go faster, shovel more coal, this or that. So he can tell us about that. And, uh, and the, um, of course, the, the radio operator can explain to us why a ship didn't come. Because there was only one there, the one that could have saved them, uh, their radio operator got to sleep because the rule hadn't been yet that you have to have two guys on the ship, right? And also, why didn't they see the iceberg? Oh, because there was, it was, there was no moon. Right, uh, and uh, and because there were no stars, it was misty. Right, and because uh, there was no wind, so that the wind throws the waves up against the edge of the iceberg and makes a little white froth. Right, no or sea meets sky. No wave. Right. Nope, that's right. So and so so then I had what Peter felt was probably the most brilliant idea he's ever heard, and we actually wrote it. I said, you know what? Since these are our witnesses, and since after the Titanic sank, there were two governmental inquiries. The first was the Senate Investigating Committee mm -hmm. on the sinking of the Titanic, which was the invention of the Senate Investigating Committee. The oh. same thing that invested Watergate, it was created, first of all, out of whole cloth. Never before was there one to investigate the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> And simultaneously, there was a Queen's Bench investigation in London. So I said, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we take, you know, we'll do the opening, the ship takes off, one of the very first beach we have is we go down to the, to the, down to the, uh, uh, to the, to the uh, where they're shoveling the coal, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and there's Frederick Barrett, and he's standing there with, and we'll hear, we'll hear a gavel, bang, bang, bang. The Queen's Bench investigation into the sinking of the Titanic will now come to order. Huh. Call the first witness, Frederick Barrett. And Brian Darcy James, right, well, who became, right, is, we thought, okay, our guy, he'll, holding his shoulder, he'll step out and look up and say, I, sir, explain the circumstances under which the ship was going too fast. Mm -hmm. And he'll sing that song. So here, so, okay, talk about a mind melt, a crazy idea. So there we were uh, at, at the first reading uh, at, at, in my living room, actually, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Richard Jones uh, turned to Peter and said, you know, Peter, um, I think we should cut the increase. <laughs> so, 
Peter's favorite thing in the world. And Peter's like, cut the inquiries. And, and, and Richard said, he says, I, I do. He said, I think, you know, I think it just be, you know, simple, straight ahead uh, um, story. You know, it's a melodrama. Go there, get there, whatever. So we cut the inquiries. After we won the Tonys, Peter never, ever, ever ceased saying, you know, if we ever get to do the show again, <laughs> we gotta put in the, we gotta put the inquiries back. We're still waiting to put the inquiries back. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but at a certain point, there comes a time when, when compromise becomes important. And that's very, because that can, that can make or break a show. And sometimes people just dig in their heels. We had that problem. In, in, in Titanic with the second act. Mm -hmm. Because Peter had written, uh, uh, it was almost 35 pages of book without a single note of music. Oh. And it was, it was basically sort of the, the, the version of uh, A Night to Remember, the book, you know? And, and we struggled and we struggled and I kept on trying to put some music into it and nothing was working. We spent a tremendous amount of disproportionate time in rehearsal, in the reading, in the preview period. And it was down to the wire. And, and uh, um, once again, core principles. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, he was my collaborator and my buddy and I owed him, you know, because we would say, you gotta try it, mm -hmm. put it in, we can always take it out. But we, we were in the last three, three weeks, maybe, maybe two and a half weeks, mm -hmm. it was really. And uh, I came back from rehearsal one night and I knew we were a flop because the whole second act wasn't working. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, they, they, they were, we were shooting, there were so many people talking at stage at once, by the time you could figure out where the voice was coming from, somebody else was talking. And, and, and we were shooting off rockets, uh, uh, emergency rockets to hope another ship would see it. And, and there was such goings on, we didn't know what was happening. And I, I, I uh, took a shower and I said, oh well, you know, you know not everything is gonna be a success. You tried your best. And then I thought, yeah, but you know, if, if you had a chance to fix it, what would you do? Um, and uh, I remembered, I, I said, okay, first of all, let's analyze the problem. The problem is, is that, is that uh, people are gonna die. And if, you, and, and if you can get in a lifeboat, you're gonna live. So what's going on in this lifeboat sequence is that it's like, it's Dr. Mengele. It's Auschwitz. Yes. It's that if you go one way, you live. If you go another way, you don't. And and worse, whether you lived or died depends upon what you wore. You know, if you were third class, you know, uh, or if you were a man, because uh, women and children first. Uh, and and so um, I thought, well, so you it's you can't put the unspeakable on a stage. So I thought, all right, fine. Well, I have a kid in the Titanic, a little kid in the cast. So why don't I just take Mrs. Thayer? And we're on the we're on the we're on the deck, and the ship is already tilting, and women are getting in the lifeboat, and she's got this little light yellow red life jacket that she's putting on our little child, mm -hmm. and she's singing, "You and I are getting in a lifeboat, father will be staying here behind," mm -hmm. and the kids and she's saying it'll be like rowing in the serpentine, right, right? and then the kid would. Rushed, I'm in the shower, by the way, thinking about it. Right? And the kid runs and he'll hold his father. You see it visually. He'll grab his father's legs and the father will just take him gently and bring him back to his mother. And, 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 um, and you know, and he'll say, go along with mother to the lifeboat. 
and she'll say, John, she'll say, don't even say it, I'll be fine. I'll collect you both tomorrow morning. You and this beloved son of mine. Mm -hmm. So the opposite. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, he knows they're gonna sink. I'll, I'll collect you tomorrow morning, right? First of all, it's hope to make the kid, to calm the kid down. It's, it's such a complex moment. And I started to write it, and I wrote the whole lifeboat sequence. And I finished at six o'clock in the morning. Mm. And I called Michael David, the producer, who lived across the street from me. And I said, you gotta come over and hear what I, so he heard it, yeah. and we had a big meeting. And I explained it, and Peter said, well, you know, we have to try it. Try it yeah. And uh, Richard said, how soon can I have it? I said, well, I have to write it out all night. I'll have it in the morning. He said, right, bring it in the morning. Uh, Kevin Stites will teach it to the cast. I'll, I'll block it that afternoon. It was in the show that night. The house came and down. It, wow. And that's, we, that's yeah. we, we were ahead. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely incredible. This is, I love it. This has been so incredible. Thank <laughs> you so oh, much, no, Maury, for so spending much. so much time with us. I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, oh thank brilliant you so rock on tour. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. <laughs> Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.